I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Monotextual Pasta Slurry Edition. It's Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. On today's show, we are running through the Oscar-nominated pictures we have yet to discuss. This time, it's another round, an impish and bittersweet ode to the tipple from Thomas Vinterberg, the wonderful, I think wonderful, Danish director and co-founder of Dogma 95. And then Dan Pashman, belovedly known in these parts as Danny Pash, OG friend of the podcast and the host of the you know really wonderful Sporkful podcast. He set out to create a new pasta shape, improbably. We discuss his delightful five-part audio series and our experience cooking and eating his creation with him. And finally, the politics of deaccessioning art. We will discuss with Carolina Miranda of the LA Times. Joining me right now is Julia Turner, who is Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Julia, how are you? Hello, hello. I'm good. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Psyched to talk. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Steve. Shall we plunge in? Let's go. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. All right, bottoms up. Another round comes from the Danish film director, Thomas Vinterberg. I think he's still best known as the co-founder of Dogna 95 with uh, Lars von Trier and for his really wonderful comedy. I mean, it's still, I think, my favorite Dogma movie, The Celebration, came out in 1998. I'm sure he's done wonderful things, English language and Danish language, since, but uh, I adore that movie. Anyway, this new one uh, has been nominated for Best Director. It's about the salvific and damnatory powers of booze, of drinking, for school teachers in Copenhagen. Uh, each suffering from varying degrees of white male middle-aged malaise form a pact with one another. They are going to test a theory that humans are burdened with a blood alcohol deficit of 0.05%. They will then do as Hemingway did, they claim Hemingway did, and they will drink constantly all day, then knock off at 8 p.m. and start up again the next day. At first, the experiment goes What's the opposite of awry? It goes swimmingly. By staying low-key drunk, their professional and personal lives begin to revive. But as you might guess, what's the opposite of swimmingly again? That's right. Am I low-key drunk? No, I just love the movie. It goes awry. At the center of these four men is Martin, or Martin, played by the really glorious actor Mads Mikkelsen. He's a good-hearted zombie who finds his history teaching and his marriage transformed by this regimen. We don't really have a clip because it's all in Danish, but uh, it's a wonderful soundtrack to the movie Dana and uh, a lot of just glorious ambient noise in it. Uh, it'll work its way into the segment, no doubt. Let me just start with you uh, right off the bat. What'd you, what'd you make of this movie? Well, I'm glad you liked it because that'll oh, give boy. us something to talk about. <laughs> oh, boy. No, no, it's it's no, it isn't even that I disliked this movie. It's that it I my expectations had been so built up. This appeared on many, many ten best lists last year. I had been waiting to see it for months. I had actually been putting off seeing it because I thought it was going to be so hardcore because of the subject matter and because of things that Vinterberg has done in the past. I also love the celebration that 1998 movie that you mentioned. It is a comedy, but it's a very, very caustic comedy about really hot button material. And so is another movie he made. The Hunt, he made in 2012, also starring Mads Mikkelsen, that's about a man falsely accused of assaulting a child. I mean, he takes on really hardcore social issues or personal issues and makes comedy out of them. And that's what this movie tries to do as well. But after having put this off and put this off because I thought, oh, I don't know if I can go through the emotional ringer of watching these people, you know, drink themselves into oblivion. I watched it and sort of came out with, is that all there is? I mean, (laughs) I agree that Mads Mikkelsen is wonderful. It is an interesting idea, a dogma type idea, actually, a sort of experiment, right? A movie about about these men conducting an experiment the way the the dogma group did back in the 90s with film. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mads Mikkelsen's a great actor. 
But there's something underwritten about this movie that none of the characters emerged into any relief for me. It was all a laboratory experiment. Like, here are four guys with no attributes doing something for unclear purposes, and we're watching it play out as if they're lab animals or something like that. I mean, all this is is artfully done, as you say. I mean, Vinterberg knows how to, you know, place a camera and and, and layer in music and sound and make a, a beautiful artifact that's really nicely crafted. But I don't understand why this movie exists, which is a line I'm stealing from the critic Stephanie Zaharek for Time, who we, we read about in, in prepping for this. It just has a motivelessness for me. And I also have to say, not that every movie has to be absolutely equitable in this way, but every female character in this movie is pretty blonde woman yelling about domestic tasks that husband is not doing. So <laughs> the world that it it showed was just so low stakes for me that it was hard for me to care whether these guys became permanent souses or lost their jobs or or had anything at stake in this whole experiment. Mm. Don't forget the icy gray-haired headmistress who scolds them for <laughs> right. taking on the job. Well, she, she used to be a young, pretty, screaming blonde woman. Now she's an older, gray-haired, screaming well, that's woman. that's what happens. To, yeah. <laughs> Don't I know it? Uh, Julia, what do you think of this uh, uh, experiment with the four uh, uh, aged lab rats at the center of it and uh, uh, surrounded by demanding Haridans or or, uh, (laughs) humanist uh, triumph? Those are are your choices. Uh, Despite despite having some similar critiques to um, the uh, quality of the female characters, I kind of loved this movie. I don't know why. I don't know that I have a good answer to Stephanie's question of why does this movie exist, although I also didn't think her review made a forceful case for why it shouldn't either. I did wonder if there was like a missing link, like if the whole movie is a gigantic subtweet of Danish drinking culture, a thing I don't understand or have political views upon. Um, but which is sort of lightly referenced in the film a few times. Like I wondered if the movie might feel more urgent or make a more particular social sense in that context. But essentially it's a midlife crisis movie um, and it has an interesting construct and it's kind of like a tone poem to the joys and perils of drunkenness mm-hmm. and and also conviviality, which is something that, one might have missed this year, both drunkenness and conviviality. It's been probably easier to get drunk than to be convivial with friends. But, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of like crowded bars and people singing drunkenly in each other's ears and kind of play wrestling drunkenly on the streets that are strangely lit in a way that I took to be sort of Northern European midnight sunish. It just felt like an unusual object, like the kind of movie that would not really get made here by anybody. Doesn't seem like a streamer thing, doesn't seem like a blockbuster thing, doesn't really feel like it could be a TV show because it has a, a tight arc. But the the you know, particular portrait of friendship, middle-aged friendship and middle-aged malaise, I I liked it. Mm, I loved it this movie and uh, let me try to defend it uh uh first of all of course of or not of course but but an aspect of anyone's response to this movie is highly likely to be gendered this is very much a movie by a man about men i don't know if it's for men exactly but i would not be surprised if 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 a you know segment of the audience was totally unresponsive to it i think it meets an interesting challenge which is what to do with white middle-aged men are there how to dramatize their existence we still exist we still have enormous and let's call many of them unearned privileges we still exist near the center of the culture we are being decentered which is probably the most civically hopeful thing that's happened in my lifetime in some respects um but we are still there and and what to do right because all of the old moves don't work anymore you can't the, the mythologizing and the self-mythologizing, especially around alcohol and, of course, sex as well, right? Forget it. It's out the window, like, done. This, like, epic of self-pity that, that white men have been writing for millennia now is over. No one wants to hear it. Even I don't want to hear it. And I'm a massively self-pitying white middle-aged man. You know, um, our prerogatives are under 
constant justified and withering suspicion. I felt like this movie hit a very small but important target, which is well, what to do with the fact that 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 there is something uniquely burdened and self-hating about being a white man. You were sort of given everything unfairly and then you hit middle age and you don't know what to do with your unhappiness and 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 yet it doesn't this movie doesn't inflate it into something high you know it doesn't romanticize it or inflate it in ways that i thought were great but also doesn't deflate it and treat it as an object of scorn i mean it is an object of importance to the movie but not in a way self-importance i think that's a a, a combination of the writing and the direct i thought the directing is wonderful i mean the no- nomination is completely deserved but the ensemble is terrific the idea that these four men are not individuated i think is 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 completely wrong i in addition to the four i think this movie has three stars i would say the first is Matt, Mads Mikkelsen's face. I don't know that I've ever seen him in anything. It turns out my wife is madly in love with this man. Um, and by the end of the movie, I was too. I mean, I could stare this sort of, it's like Purple Mountain Majesty meets Amber Waves of Grain, these brown, you know, doleful eyes. I mean, he's just he's just so dreamy. He's really wonderful and, and quite expressive. Um, the second hero, obviously, is, is alcohol. I mean, this movie's a... a uh, it is, Dan. I mean, Julia. I think you're absolutely right. It's like an ode to conviviality and this missing thing from a lot of, you know, loneliness is the middle aged man's disease, right? And it's it's the it's the horrible dialectical flip side of our privilege. And and they're over trying to overcome that and and find themselves again through this absurd absurd experiment. And I think that leads into the third hero of the book, who's Kierkegaard, the great Danish you know, philosophical saint who invented existentialism. This is an existentialist movie. It's about Kierkegaard is name-checked in the movie. He plays a small role in in it. His ideas play, I think, a large role over the whole thing. This is a movie about how fucking absurd existence is, how essentially unrewarding it is, unless you find some way to leap into the heart of its absurdity. And I think that that's what this movie was. It's four men falling apart each in their own way who make this pact its absurdity is so manifest i love the pseudoscientific nature of it that you know this this completely preposterous thesis that human beings are addled with this deficit of 0.05% alcohol and if you could only bring yourself up to baseline everything would be fine i loved the movie is it somewhat underwritten i think that that's part of the dogma of us a uh, dogmaness of it uh, dana i think you were meant to feel as though you were watching something completely preposterous but that actually also really happened yeah i mean i want to come around steve when i hear your reading of it and i went into it really excited for it and as i say enjoyed the setup enjoyed the acting found it well done in every way except that i just didn't find the story believable Mm. you know that the the scientific the pseudoscientific theory that you refer to the thing that inspires them or at least gives them a rationalization for their drinking experiment is a real thing. There is actually a Norwegian psychologist, a researcher, I'm not sure what his credentials are, but someone has put forth this idea <laughs> in a book that humans need to have a 0.05 blood alcohol level to, to function at their maximum capacity, which has been thoroughly debunked by the observation that we don't naturally have any alcohol in our system. So how can you say <laughs> that the amount we have is too low? <laughs> And the idea of using that again, I mean, as you say, it's sort of dogma-like to take this idea from the real world and fold it into this fictionalized story. But there was there was a sort of a lack of just behavioral recognizability to me in, in the way alcohol functions in this movie. At times, as you say, it was, it's this agent of chaos in their lives. At other times, it's this agent of conviviality. Of course, that's true of alcohol in real life as well. Again, I just felt that there was something arbitrary and lab-like in the way that those standards mm. seem to apply. For example, I mean, with a couple of exceptions, the way that they acted when drunk, and I'm not saying they're bad actors, I'm saying that the script was having alcohol perform things in their lives that it wouldn't actually do. It actually reminds me a bit of The Queen's Gambit. Remember my critique of The Queen's Gambit? Which I was is sort thinking of about that. This idea that shoving pills in your mouth by the handful will make you a great chess player. It's it's just a strange kind of magical thinking connection to make in relation to alcohol this movie careens off the axis i I was waiting for that moment and in some ways that was what worked least for me because that was gestured to you know the marriages and the you know broken glass and all that stuff was a little quick for me but um and it, it had to do it you couldn't you couldn't portray alcohol as this as this savior 
Right. No, it clearly, I mean, I, I will give Vinterberg lots of credit for that, for plenty of ambiguity about the relationship of his characters and his story to, you know, the value of alcohol in culture. But the movie both opens and closes on these scenes of students partying because these guys are high school teachers, right? Mm-hmm. And um, And so... We start off with what seems to be this very negative, to me, it seemed to be very negative image of a bunch of students doing this kind of like beer race where they're vomiting as they're trying to get a case of beer across a lake. And it all seemed somewhat uh, down on the idea of alcohol culture. And then we end on another party scene that's maybe the best part of the movie because Maz Mikkelsen is an incredible dancer, as we learn in this this last scene, and was actually, I think, trained as a dancer before he started acting. And that seems to be this great celebration of the conviviality of alcohol. But some things have happened along the way, which I won't reveal, that are, you know, very disturbing about the alcohol culture, not only that these men live in, but that the young people they're teaching live in. So apparently this movie is a big hit in Denmark and everybody young and old is going to see it. Um, Oh, wonderful. that's, That's great. But I wonder what kind of conversations are being had there about, you know, drinking and drinking culture as a result of Mm -hmm. this film. I do, I will say, I I actually felt like the the end of the movie reframes the beginning and comes back around to Stephen's existentialist point, which is you're supposed to read the kids' drunken chaos as this, like, disgusting, goofy thing at the beginning. And then the movie sort of reframes it as, like, the kids are just grappling with the chaos of existence, too. (laughs) Like, I don't know. the, The movie sort of gave me sympathy for I felt like to the degree that the movie might have a point it felt to me like we were supposed to reframe that initial scene from what the movie takes us through along the way Dana I think it's not that you dislike this movie I think it's that you thought you were biting into fettuccine but instead it was tagliatelle (laughs) as long as there's a big jug of wine next to it That's that's the Dana Stevens I know. All right, the movie is called uh, Another Round. It's uh, don't listen to Dana. This one's great. Uh, no, uh, but watch it and 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 uh, email us and tell us what you thought thought of it. I think it's great. You can find it in one form or another on Amazon Prime or Hulu. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on all your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we talk business. Dana, inevitably we have some. What, What do you have? Steve, the only business is to say that in Slate Plus today, we're going to talk about something that we often return to, but it's an ever-renewed subject of interest, which is children's literature. We had a listener write in and ask, what is a piece of children's literature, film, other culture for children that you missed as a child and discovered as an adult? And we all had lots of answers for that. So that's what we'll talk about in our bonus segment today. If you are not a Slate Plus member, of course, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. It costs only a dollar for your first month, and that dollar will get you access to ad-free podcasts podcasts and all kinds of exclusive plus only content like our bonus segment and bonus segments to practically every podcast Slate does. Once again, you can sign up for that at slate.com slash culture plus. And if you're already a member, thank you so much for subscribing. And if you have a topic or question you would like us to talk about in one of our future bonus segments, just send us an email at culturefest at slate.com. We love to incorporate listener suggestions into that part of the show. Okay, what's next, Steve? How to even introduce the next segment. The OG of OGs for the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the supreme absolute friend of the program, the SAFOP, I don't know exactly, is Dan Pashman. He was one of our earliest producers on the show, the man who sent me spiraling through years of booze and pills by misjudging a granola competition. He is the host of the <laughs> delicious and award-winning Sporkful podcast. Dan, I, there's just no way to walk listeners through this without you kind of walking me through it first. It's just so preposterous. 
but maybe that's the Danny Pash brand. <laughs> I mean, look, the so we did this series on the Sporkful and uh, where I set out to invent a new pasta shape and it begins with me saying that spaghetti sucks. That's where it all begins. You it, just... it, it doesn't have enough surface area to hold sauce. It's not You can't really sink your teeth into it. It's kind of thin and flimsy. It spatters all over the place when you start twirling it or sucking it in. It's just like it's fine, but it's not that great. You have something that has been crowdsourced over eons, right? If you put enough monkeys in front of enough typewriters and give them enough time, they will type the, the you know the complete works of Shakespeare, right? Humanity has been developing new pasta shapes for millennia, right? And you also so so at once you have to find something that hasn't been made already, and you very much did not want a gimmick. You did not want a gimmicky pasta shape. You wanted something that could, that could sort of you know, noiselessly join up with the canon of great pasta shapes. That that's just strikes me going in as as impossible. Well, it's funny. I, I was never that worried about being able to come up with a new idea for a shape because I feel like there's kind of an in, infinite number of concepts. The things that I thought would be so hard would be one that was legitimately good to eat. But... What made what what was so much harder than that was was that part of my quest was to actually get it made, and that was a much bigger barrier than I ever thought it would be. You know, like uh, um, basically the way you make pasta is like the Play-Doh factory. You you know, like this. You remember it's made with a die, so like D I E. Uh, uh, you remember the Play-Doh factory? You have that little disc with a star-shaped hole. You push Play-Doh through it, and it comes out shaped like a star. That's how you make pasta, and that little star-shaped disc is called a die. So I had to get one of those manufactured. And early on, I, I hit on this idea that, that I wanted to have ruffles because I love shapes with ruffles. I love Mafalda, which is like a fettuccine with ruffles on the edges. And then it took me a while to come around, but I warmed up to Bucatini, which is like a long, narrow tube, like spaghetti that's hollow down the center. And I said, I want a tube element and I want ruffles. And I took that to a dye maker and he started experimenting for me. And he said, it's impossible. You can't, basically, as the dough is going through the dye, the shape is formed in less than a second, and you can only do so much in that split second, and the movement required to create the ruffles would crush the tube. And that was the kind of brick wall that I ran into on this quest that I never anticipated. Yeah, you ran into a lot of brick walls along the way. I mean, that's the delight. I've got to say, I mean, it's a five-part series. It's incredibly fun, and it's just fun to hang out with Dan Pashman, but it's also just hilarious for all of like your the skepticism that you face. Your wife's this 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 guy who kind of runs a you know manufacturing has been in manufacturing pasta forever. Who's like just no. I'm going to be honest because you seem like a nice guy, and I don't want to send you off you know to the abyss. Um, I don't think it would be enough to have people say, "Wow, look at that different pasta." You, you know, you'd really have to come up with something that is not even in the realm of, of having been done before. You're just told no over and over and over again. And yet, Dan, you produced a pasta, a new pasta shape. Dan, um, I have to register here that you and I spoke about pasta shapes on The Sporkful eight or nine years ago. I remember because I was pregnant at the time and I think you came over to my apartment to record because I was on bed rest. That's right. I did not go back and listen to that episode, which I meant to do. Um, but I feel like you might have been talking about this idea even then. Is it possible you've been thinking about this for that long? Certainly, it's, I uh, feel like the 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 germative concepts of uh, forkability, sauceability, and tooth sinkability, uh, which have now all become canon in my house where I listen to your five-part series with my with my children. Um, I feel like you were getting at some of those ideas in that debate. And I believe in that debate, we had a we had a, we had a conflict about the virtue of short versus long shapes. So, I felt very vindicated to see you arrive at short shaped them. Yeah. Well, first of all, Julia, yes, I remember that that taping well. Did you tell your kids that they were there the first time the Sporkful ever talked about pasta shapes? <laughs> I did. They were <laughs> good. Good. They, they were not super impressed, but I might, I might go back and find it and play it for them. Yeah, yeah. They do um, feel. I think they're very excited that I know you. Like you're famous to them that, now. Yeah, it has been really cool. Like a lot of my friends' kids are like, "Wait, we know a food inventor." You know, like I just think that's that's been really cool and and adorable. Um, and 
I, I do remember us having a conflict over short and long shapes. At that time, I was very pro-long shapes. In my quest, I set out to create a long shape. That's where I started, um, basically for two reasons. First, I, I think well, I think it was three reasons. One, when you twirl a long shape on the fork, it's just kind of like a fun thing to do. Two, you get tend to get, I think, more pasta on the fork at once, which makes for a more tooth-sinkable bite. And three, I think there's less variation among long shapes that are already existing, and so therefore I thought more opportunities for innovation. What I ran, what I learned when I tried to do, do a long shape is that there's a reason why there's less variation among long shapes, and that is because they are harder to eat and harder to manufacture. And when my shape became too bulky to be properly forked, or even really to be boxed, perhaps, um, and hit manufacturing problems, I had to switch to a short shape. But I did learn in the process, in part of my research, I was eating all these other shapes. I ate this great shape by this Italian company called um, Rusticella d'Abruzzo. They make this uh, shape called San Sanye e Pezzi, I think is how you say it. It's like broken pieces of lasagna ruffles. Mm. It's basically like just the ruffles. And it's just made so well. And it's even though the pieces are small, they're so thick. That was the first short shape that I ate that made me think, wow, short shapes can be every bit as tooth sinkable as long shapes. And that helped persuade me to switch to short shapes. And it helped me to see the wisdom in maybe what you were saying all along, Julia. Dan, I have so many questions for you. I absolutely loved this series. And I listened to it while doing all kinds of experiments with your pasta. I cooked up almost a whole box of it and just tried it with all different sauces over a course of several nights. There was a period when I was making one sauce and as a snack while making that sauce, I was eating your pasta with another sauce. So <laughs> there have been a lot of curious noodle shapes stuffed into the mouths of my family this week. And I want to talk about what you named the shape, but I won't spoil that yet. But I feel like we should get to a moment when all of us go around the table here and just talk about our own experience of first encountering this shape, cooking it and eating it. So on first seeing your noodle through the little window that's in the box that it's sold in, what occurred to me, and this is one metaphor I didn't hear and the many, many metaphors people were using to describe it on the show was uh, an escargot. You know, the, the way a snail has that sort of um, frill across the top when it's, when it's crawling along in its shell. Right. That's what this reminded me of. And I know somebody else did compare it to a seahorse or some other sort of aquatic life. I know that's not what you were going for in the shape, but the combination of this double row of ruffles, right, that looks sort of like a, a, a snail's frill and the twistiness of it give it this really organic quality in the box. And I know that you wanted to make all these different, what you call it, I think, um, dynamic contrasts, right, in the shape where there's these slender ripples on the side that are sort of for holding more delicate parts of the sauce. And there's also this ridge down the middle so that if you had, for example, capers, one thing that I made and tried this with had capers, they can kind of get lodged in that ridge and you get a lot more sauce on the bite. Um, a thing that I didn't hear anyone observe in the show, although one of your your commenters, one of your, your fairy godmother of pasta says that, um, that this is a meaty pasta and I, I get what she means that the tooth sinkability factor is so great that it's extremely filling that was something that I noticed on cooking and making this over a week is that between the fact that it's a, a dense noodle in itself like each noodle is a pretty serious piece of pasta in itself and that it holds an extra amount of sauce and it was designed to do that I found that I got really full after eating about half as much pasta as I would normally eat it's it's a, it's a lot to sink your teeth into but yet, I, I should say, I can't take credit for coming up with the idea of dynamic contrast. That is a concept that sensory scientists talk about. It's like the idea of um, different textures in the same bite. So, for instance, when you bite into a candy bar, there's a hard chocolate shell that you pierce. Then there's maybe something chewy and gooey. Then you land on something crunchy. Those different textures in the same bite is dynamic contrast. And that doesn't exist in many pasta shapes. Most pasta shapes are monotextural. And so I really wanted to try to get that in my shape. All right. I got to I gotta call a point of order here. So I'll, I'll, I'll take my turn at the mic. Um, my children were totally entranced by this show. I think it may have been the first, like, truly collective media experience we've had because, as I oh. discussed on the show, they don't – they find movies a little overwhelming. So we, we we were all driving around listening to it together. We had so much fun. They they are they love to repeat forkability, sauceability, to sinkability. <laughs> oh, that's they've, awesome. I'm they've so happy to hear that. They've also invented their own concept, Parmigianability, um, <laughs> because they often eat pasta with butter and Parmesan, um, which is not quite a sauce. Um, so anyway, we had a family taste test last night, um, and... 
It's really good, Dan. It's a really good pasta. Like I, I really enjoyed it. It was great with butter and Parmesan. And then I had a little bit of, and this might be just too many internet pasta trends converging. And I'm surprised the sun hasn't blocked it blacked out and swallowed me up. I had a little <laughs> dish of the Alison Roman shallot pasta goo in my fridge. <laughs> so I cried like, what if the sporkful, but also Alison Roman, <laughs> I whip that together and, um, through, through some, through some parsley and garlic on it. Um, it's, it's really good. It does have that dynamic contrast you're talking about. It's incredibly filling. I was very, very full. Um, I do, though, want to go back to first principles. You spent a lot of time knocking spaghetti in this podcast. You also spent a lot of time knocking one of my favorite shapes, which is fusilli. Um, and one of your complaints about fusilli is that the middle is not cooked while the outside flanges are too floppy. But, dude, pasta hypocrisy alert. That's just dynamic <laughs> contrast. If you took one of your pasta shapes and <laughs> twirled it around, you'd essentially get, like, a ruffly fusilli. Um, so I just, I just want to stipulate that... That's I, I hear what you're saying, Julia. <laughs> I, I would respond by saying that, look, I, I think that, you know, what, what was very hard to nail with this shape is, look, if you have two, if the variation in thickness in different parts of a shape is too extreme, then you will end up with fusilli, where you have some parts that are mushy and some parts that are crunchy, and you don't want that. Yes, I guess technically that fits the definition of dynamic contrast, but but it's not good for pasta so the the key with pasta is you you needed that, that variation to be subtle subtly like small enough that you still it's cooked it all needs to be cooked but some parts are just a little chewy and dense and some parts are a little soft and tender and so th that's a tough needle to thread and i mean i I wanted us to be able to thread it. I have to admit, I feel like we half just got lucky because, you know, we, we, it, it took us a few versions to get that. But, I mean, you, someone else probably could have spent 100 versions and, and not nailed it quite so well. I kind of just feel like, you know, the stars aligned. So I can't take too much credit for how perfect the needle has been threaded. But it I worked. Just would, I end. would like the record to show that I think you're buying the wrong fusilli. But I also have to confess that I really loved your pasta. I appreciate it. I, but my other problem is fusilli, you know, you get that corkscrew, it's it's almost, it's too sauceable. There's too much sauce in that bite. And you get, you, I feel like I'm drinking sauce with like a a, a, brie, a faint hint of pasta. It's true. Oh, wow. I prefer it's it with like a pesto, like one of those, like mm -hmm. a, almost right. more of one of those okay. glazy sauces than a gloopy sauce. Fair enough. Uh, I, if there are pasta gods, Julia, we're both going to get, you know, the finger of lightning is coming for both of us because my my daughter cooked that night. And did the Gigi Hadid um, pasta, <laughs> um, but uh, Dan, I thought uh, you know, I just I thought it was I, I loved everything about it. Right, I love the box. I love the word "sporkful" on the on the box is just great. Uh, I felt like I had a, just a little bit of Dan Pashman in my mouth. I mean, it just was you know, I think of you as forkable, sauceable, <laughs> <laughs> and of course. Nothing if not tooth sinkable, <laughs> and uh, I thought I thought the I thought the pasta was delicious. I liked the idea that I plunked it into this giant vat of boiling water, and immediately the pasta just um, overwhelmed it. I, I I I my panic of not getting enough to eat was satisfied. But I love the bite of it, the look of it, the the branding of it. The whole thing is just great, and the podcast is marvelous. So, without further ado, shall we? Yeah, Dan, we've been saving the name of the pasta for you to reveal. But as you do, I would like you to talk about the, the process of naming a pasta, because as is revealed over the course of the five episodes uh, about this this whole crazy project, um, naming a pasta is a huge part of the branding and the selling of it. Yeah, I mean, so so the way I came at the naming was kind of similar to the shape itself, which is, first off, I, I don't want a gimmick. I don't want a gimmick shape. You know, some of my friends were like, "Oh, call it the Sporktini or the Pashmini." I was like, "No, like those are you know." I, I wanted it to sound like a name that has been there all along, a pasta shape that's been there all along. And my favorite pasta shape names are the ones where it's named. It's with it's the Italian word for something that it looks like. So radiatore, little radiators, um, cavatappi, corkscrews, orecchiette, little ears. So I basically just asked a bunch of people, "What does this look like to you?" And uh, got a ton of different responses because the shape is is unique. You know, it also depends on how you hold it. And some some from some vantage points, it looks very different from others. A lot of people said that it looked reptilian, like a dinosaur. So I, I thought, oh, maybe stegosauro is the Italian word for stegosaurus. But then I thought 
you know, it's going to sound like a kid's pasta. So we ended up, if you hold the shape vertically, the two ruffles parallel look like fl water flowing down. So we ended up calling it cascatelli, which is Italian for waterfalls. Sort of, because you changed the gender. That's right. Yes, and 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 I do need to stipulate here because I, I I did a segment on NPR, and boy, are those public radio listeners fun when you <laughs> mess up. I know that it's supposed to be cascatelle ending in an e. I decided to take some poetic license and end it in an I because it sounds more like a pasta shape name that way. Um, and because I kind of want to get featured in the Twitter feed, Italians mad at food. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a troll. Right, yeah. Um, but, but oh my God, the public, you know, I, I've been out of the world of public radio for too long and I forgot how irritating some of those listeners can be. I had, we, we got an email from someone who was like, please call me immediately so I can pronounce the word correctly for you over the phone. <laughs> Did you take him up on that? <laughs> uh, I mean, just the worst. Um, so yes, I know it's not technically correct. People don't bombard our friend, my friends here at the Gab Fest, with your complaints. Oh, I got complaints. What about arecchiette? What about farfalle? You can have plenty of e-ending pasta shapes. I, I'm not it's sure true. you needed that grace note, but I. It's but possible, I, yes. But I wanted something that sounded as much like a classic, you know, to the average supermarket shopper as possible. Okay, I, I, Dan, I, I'm loath a little bit to go here, but not really. How many <laughs> hundreds of pounds of pasta are you going to end up with in your basement, or are you going to break even, or, or God forbid, go into the black on this? I, I'm, I'm. This is a, a, a spoiler for the end of the series, but you know, at this point, we can say it. Um, uh, we are going to go into the black. We're in the black. Um, <laughs> we, uh, the initial batch of pasta sold out in less than two hours. Which was incredible, you know. Like I, I had, you know, I, I front helped front the money to get this off the ground out of my own pocket, and was very nervous about that, as we talk about in the series. And um, my wife was very nervous about it, um, and so it was a real risk. It, it felt like a real risk, um, but it was honestly, it was especially gratifying because, you know, we've gotten some press now for the shape, but the first batch sold out just from the podcast dropping in our feed, which means that it was people who listened to the story. Oh, yeah. And uh, so it was, it's was. it been really exciting that people have responded to the story the way that they have. And, uh, and, and the fact that it inspired them to buy the pasta is cool too. Dan, before we end this segment, can you tell listeners how they can get their hands on a box of Cascatelli if they want it as they should? Yes, you can order it now through Sfolini. That's the pasta company I partner with to make the pasta. It's at Sfolini.com, S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I. -I. Uh, the G is silent, but it's, it looks like Sfoglini, but it's pronounced Sfolini.com. You'll have to wait a little while to get it because there's been a lot of demand, but place your orders now. I promise it'll be worth the wait. And, uh, and I hope you listen to the whole story of the, this crazy quest at the Sporkful podcast. Oh, wow. All right. Well, that, that's just the perfect button for us. Uh, Dan, congratulations on Cascatelli. And as always, the Sporkful just, is just the most delightful podcast. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it as always. Take care. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Museums don't just sell art. That is way too crass. They deaccession it. The practice has been generally frowned upon, um, in part, as I understand it, because museums are run as public trusts. Their prestige comes from existing at a decorous remove from the art market. They're not in the business, obviously, of making a fast buck. But that may be changing. Um, possibly for two reasons. The pandemic has led to a funding crisis, predictably. And also, post-George Floyd, there is now a serious debate about uh, the canon of Western art, its whiteness, its uh, maleness, etc. And deaccessioning may be a step along the way to diversifying collections or even possibly creating development funds to help the careers of artists of color. Here to discuss the politics of auctioning off from your permanent collection is Carolina Miranda. She is arts and urban design columnist for the LA Times. Carolina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's it's great to have you. Uh, we're fans of your work. Let me just begin by having you give us a little background or our listeners a little background or on deaccessioning, what that means and how it's been practiced or hasn't been. Well, historically, it's been something regulated by the American Association of Art Museums. And the general rule on it is that museums deaccession work to then acquire other work. So any money you make from a deaccession is then used to acquire new works for the collection. That money cannot be used uh, for other purposes like administrative or salaries or maintenance. And the idea behind that is that museum collections are not taxed. They're not considered part of a museum's assets. The, The museum is there to care for that collection, not sort of sell it off every time it needs a little bit of cash. So those rules were put in place partly to protect that. Now, in pre-Floyd, there have been cases of museums deaccessioning works to diversify collections, but that money has always been put back into the pool to acquire new works, not for other purposes. And what changed with the pandemic? Well, what has changed with the pandemic is that obviously a lot of museums are facing financial crunches. Uh, You know, the Met uh, in New York, publicized the other day that it's facing $150 million uh, shortfall. And so the AAMD relaxed its, its rules last April, saying that museums could deaccession works, uh, not just to acquire other works, but to um, uh, fund the direct care of the collection. Now, part of the debate around all of this is what exactly is meant by direct care? Does that cover, say, the guard's salary who stands in the museum and keeps an eye on the work while visitors are are, are looking at? And it has led to a wave of museums deaccessioning works to uh, basically prop up their bottom line. Carolina, can you give us the strongest argument against doing this? I mean, people who it sounds like some people in the museum world are are really upset that these standards are being relaxed, even if it's a temporary relaxation during pandemic crunch times. Is the fear simply that museums will become like art galleries, like stores, and that there there won't be any more public trust? I mean, it seems, I guess, coming to it from the outside, the kind of dumbbell question from someone who knows nothing about this world is... Well, if you're in the midst of a of a huge financial crisis and you're sitting on all these millions of dollars worth of art, what would be the objection to selling some of it off to make ends meet? I think, you know, the answer is it's complicated. <laughs> I think at big museums like the Met, where you have board stuffed full of billionaires and billionaires have seen their wealth rise by untold trillions over the last 10 months, the question is, where is the board and why is the board not helping shore up the institution they're they're presumably supporting uh, during this time? I think there's a couple of other concerns as well, which is one is the IRS. If you start treating your collection as an asset, will it then be taxed as an asset? Like they're currently not. And, you know, you start going down that path and you start entering some fraught financial uh, territory. And I think the other thing is also as, um, you know, setting up a precedent for donors. If you're a big donor who wants to give your collection to a museum, will you want to be giving it to institutions that might sell it off when, hey, they have to, they need a few bucks to pay the light bill? I'd love for you to frame this, though, a little bit more in the context of um, the the larger conversation around equity in museums that you've been reporting on this year, both in terms of the diversity of the collections, which sounds like diversifying your collection would have been allowed by the rules prior to the pandemic, but um, but actually focusing on equity in the institutions and how people are paid and um, and how they're run and who runs them. Do do you know some people who are in favor of deaccessioning, and for these purposes, and presented as um, something that maybe needs to change and modernize, are, are framing it in that context? Do you buy that argument? How, do do you see these issues as related, or or do you see that as a convenient excuse? Um, well, I, I think, you know, the idea of museums revisiting their collections and diversi- diversifying them is really important. And it is worth no- noting that museums like SF MoMA and the Baltimore Art Museum prior to the pandemic um, deaccessioned works and used those funds to diversify their collections. I think this is a worthy and worthwhile um, endeavor. I think, you know, how do you diversify a collection if you don't occasionally dip into it and, and mix things up a little bit? Like I can't, museums can't remain the same and also change. Um, 
you know, I think what the relaxation of the rules has raised is, is that issue, which I think can be a little bit of a canard because museums were already doing that prior to the pandemic. You know, there are museums like the Baltimore Art Museum that have, you know, that had wanted to deaccession a number of works, a, a work by Warhol and Bryce Martin um, uh, among and Clifford Still to fund, you know, better guard salaries and better museum salaries for curators at the bottom end. There are these famous inequities within museums about who gets paid what. And I think the Baltimore Art Museum was going to use some of these relaxed rules to help you know, prop up some of those wages to create more equitable wages within the museum. You know, I, I think that is a worthy cause. I think deaccession, you know, going through the collection, finding really ex uh, expensive works and deaccessioning them for the purpose of paying wages starts getting into sticky territory of treating the art as an asset. And it goes back to that issue of, you know, letting the board off the hook. I think what we have seen in, in recent decades is these very wealthy boards who are happy to donate money when they can slap their name on a building, but, you know, are it's crickets when it's time to pay museum wages or invest in diverse art or uh, do any of the of the of the sort of more socially justice minded things that we are thinking now in this post Floyd age. And I think, you know, it's like the Met raised this fund, started a fund, a pandemic fund to raise money uh, to fund their shortfall. You know, they have a board stacked with billionaires. They've raised twenty five million. Um, and so it's like, so what are these boards doing? What is their role? You know, how are they supporting their institutions? I, I, I think this debate, institutions can use it to say, hey, we want to diversify. We want to do all this great stuff. It lets their boards off the hook. It's like, come on, guys, pay up. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Carolina, you used to, you know, you talked about treating art as an asset and it calls to mind, you know, the complex relationship between the museum and the art market. Um, you know, one is, um, they're both, they're, they're, they're meant to be kept kind of separate in some way so that the prestige granting function of the museum is not in any way beholden to the dollar value granting function of the, of the art price system, but in fact, they're incredibly implicated in one another and the museum, there, there's a single kind of economy of prestige surrounding art that feeds into what an astronaut, how astronomical a price for a work might be. And um, so it's not as though deaccessioning, you know, doesn't have a consequence for uh, the art market. The flow can go in the other way, right? It's, it's like a museum is making a statement about a work of art or an artist when they acquire a work for their permanent collection. They're making, you know, the opposite statement, or possibly, I, I guess I'm asking, are they making the opposite statement when they sell something? do they affect the market for not only a work, but an artist or even a kind of art when they begin to deaccession? How seriously is that taken as a statement about the value of a work? Yeah, there is a, a question about that. I mean, in many cases, it depends on what's being deaccessioned. You know, SF MoMA deaccessioned a Rothko, the Baltimore Art Museum wanted to deaccession a Warhol. Those pieces probably would have commanded a high dollar. The Warhol would have commanded a high dollar value at, at auction. You know, rich guys like Warhol. Um, <laughs> other <laughs> you know, so, That so. is like such a fucking ironclad tautology. It is so true. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. You need a and you could just like oh wrap God. it right up. It's like on the checklist. <laughs> um, you know, those pieces probably would have commanded a lot at market. You know, traditionally museums have refrained, for example, from deaccessioning living artists. And so, um, you know, there was a case where that I believe it was the Dallas Art Museum deaccessioned a case, uh, a piece by Yayoi Kusama. Um, the Warhol was going to deaccession a piece by Bryce Martin. That gets starts getting a little sticky because with those artists living, you do have this potential to affect the market. And while that artist is still alive, it could really, you know, affect that artist's direct, you know, the living that they make um, off of their work. Obviously, artists don't make any money when works go to auction, but certainly auction prices affect what they can um, command for their work. So I would say that the answer to that question, like everything else is it depends and it's complicated. It depends on the artist and the appetite for that artist in the market. What it does do is that, and this is the real 
bummer behind it is that it takes work that was once public and often puts it in private hands because oftentimes what museums do is they go to auction houses and it just goes to the highest bidder. There have been, you know, some, there has been some talk, although nothing has come of it, of like, you know, would it be more appropriate for when museums are deaccessioning to deaccession to other museums or other public um, institutions of, of finding ways to keep um, those works in the, in the, in the public stead. So that's, that's the argument against, and it sounds pretty strong, but what's, you know, there, it does, there are some museum directors who were quoted in a piece in the New York times this past weekend, um, arguing that it's time to throw these old rules out the window. And in fact, we, we should consider deaccessioning differently. Are there, are there any merits to that argument that you can see, or what's the strongest case for that version of events? Well, I think, you know, historically deaccessioning has been this very complicated process, which is this idea that you only deaccession works that are um, no longer core to your collecting mission, or maybe the piece is damaged or um, in some way rendered irrelevant or was declared a fake, whatever. The rules around it have been pretty strict. I think I think the idea of deaccessioning to rethink the nature of collections is a valuable idea. I think part of the problem has been the execution. The AMD issues this revised rule in April it, um, that you know kind of seemed to emerge from not enough deliberation, and it wasn't very clear. It was like, okay, you can use the funds for direct care of of the collection, and um, what does that mean? And it, museums have been interpreting that very, very loosely. And I think that's where the problem comes from. So I think there is room to rethink deaccessioning. I think there is room to rethink how collections are built and evolve over time. I think the way it's been done has probably not been the best, most deliberative way. And I I do want to add one thought, which is I know that this you know, for the bigger museums, obviously they've got the millionaires on their boards, you know, the LACMAs and the METs and the MOMAs, you know, they've they've got the big pockets. Certainly these rules are more critical for smaller institutions that don't have those kinds of, of members on their boards that can that can buttress their budgets. But um, you know, what you find what we are finding is the supremely wealthy institutions that probably don't need to be selling off the work are now thinking about selling off work. And, and, and what is that about? Is that, is that because they really need the money because they're really in a financial crunch or because the board's not kicking in? All right. Well, um, Carolina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this, to sort of walk us through this complex and nuanced subject, this great segment. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? So as some listeners know, I guess if you're a Slate Plus subscriber, you probably know, I've been doing a podcast for the last almost two years called Flashback with Kay Austin Collins, who's the film critic at Rolling Stone. 
And in it, we discuss, it's a bi-weekly podcast, and we discuss an older movie, by which we mean essentially a movie before 1999 was the uh, the random date we put down, sometimes a classic Hollywood movie, sometimes something from another country, um, trying to make it as broad and diverse a slate of movies as we can so that we ourselves can learn about film. And as of last week, as of our last episode, which was on The Apartment, the Billy Wilder classic, Flashback has come to an end. That is the last episode of Flashback because of decisions from the podcasting side about what the budget could handle. They just decided that Flashback, although they loved the show, had run its course. So I'm still in denial about that fact because I loved doing the show, but I'm endorsing the whole archive. Uh, you can listen to The Apartment, this last episode, for free because we released it outside the paywall. But hopefully that will entice people behind the paywall where even if it's not still being made, there is an archive of 50 episodes of flashback um, of movies from Hitchcock to Chantal Ackerman to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I mean, we have talked about a huge, huge variety of movies and we had lots more titles that we, we wanted to get to. But I hope that people will maybe take that as an incentive to try out Slate Plus and explore the archive of flashback. Dana, I was so sad to hear that news. What a bummer. Um, I, I, uh, I'm glad you're taking a moment to shout out that show. It was so fun to hear you and uh, cast and Collins nerd out. Um, oh, nice to know you were listening. Yeah. Um, my endorsement this week is a log roll. It's a bit of a local selection, um, which I felt bad about until I remembered how many times Steve has recommended things that you can find in Columbia County, population 60,000. Uh, my recommendation is something more relevant to people who live in L.A. County, population 10.04 million. So I decided to to uh, stuff my objections to local recommendations and continue. The L.A. Times published uh, last week a the ultimate guide to hiking in Southern California. It's just freaking crazy how you can live in a wonderful metropolis full of amazing things to do and see and eat and art and culture and people. And you can also drive 12 to... 70 minutes and reach just incredible hikes, like hikes like you'd have to drive hours for in the Northeast. Um, and so the features team at the LA Times put together this really great hiking guide that has some of the best hikes in LA County, has um, a specialized sandwich guide with which sandwich to get near the trailhead and then carry the sandwich to the top and eat the sandwich at the top and has started this trend of sandwich hike selfies that people around uh, LA are now taking up. Um, it's super useful. And if you are one of the 10.4 million people who live here, you should check it out. And if you are <laughs> one of the many more people who visit or like to visit, it's a great guide. So we'll put a link to it on the show page. You know, Steve, dunking on you is my love language. You just, you just have to, <laughs> you just have to acknowledge it. <laughs> Posterized. Uh, if you know the phrase. All right. Uh, I, my kids, my endorsement is just short and sweet. My kids, the funny, there's this weird echo effect um, whereby um, this new generation of, and a lot of them, it's really, I don't know if it's super gendered, but you just have these young women musical artists who clearly grew up listening to their mom and dad's uh, alterna music which is my music, and it's filtering back through TikTok, right? So Pavement, the band Pavement, just the er, you know, grad school nerd hipster band from the 90s, you know, had a song go, you know, massively viral on TikTok. And so everyone my kid's age, these are 15, 16 Wait, which Pavement song? I don't know about this. Uh, I believe it is the song Harness Your Hopes. And, and I hate to, you know, break it to all of us, but the line I think that helped it go viral was... Um, well, show me a word that rhymes with pavement and I won't kill your parents and roast them on a spit. Anyway, but from such, you know, whatever, footholds, like my, my, you know, I think kids are getting into pavement and then the latest one, which just, and also, by the way, they find their way onto the soundtracks of TV shows that are about 16-year-old kids, but are actually produced by 45-year-old showrunners, you know? So my kids recently have gotten into Teenage Fan Club. I love the band Teenage Fan Club. I hadn't listened to Teenage Fan Club in 20 years when all of a sudden it appeared on my daughter's playlist. She was DJing as we were driving around. Um, and they're just such a great band. And uh, she introduced me to a Teenage Fan Club song I'd never heard before called With You off of the album here. So good.
love that band you know three guys with guitars harmonizing kind of sound some of their stuff sounds sort of like the birds but you know i mean lovingly they obviously were homaging the birds and some of their stuff but anyway teenage fan club song is with you check it out julia thank you so much thank you steve and dana uh thank you thanks steve You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us. We love it when you do. We've been getting great ones. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our intro music is by the wonderful composer Nick Bertel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you soon.